And so today for uh, this uh, last session together of this retreat, which was in a way titled Living Fiercely, and also we have decided to look at the paramis cultivating these qualities in terms of helping us to live fiercely. And we have covered the paramis. And so what I like to look at now, actually, it's fear itself. So this morning, I like to look at fear. And I like to look at another practice, which actually could be very interesting in terms of living fearlessly, which is a questioning practice I was trained in in Korea. But fear, you see, I think when we talk about living fearlessly, it doesn't mean that we're eradicating fear. But actually, we're looking what are the conditions, what are the quality which are going to help us to live fearlessly? Also, what are the quality that are going to help us in a way to be with fear. And so what I like to look at today is in a way, in order to live fearlessly, actually is to explore how do we experience fear? What is fear about? And to me, the friendly mindfulness, the anchoring, the looking deeply, the wisdom, in approaching fear, I think can be very useful. So it's really, I think, very useful to explore fear. How does it feel? What kind of emotion is it? And so the first thing I like to say about fear is that actually it is a very important, essential, creative function of this organism living in the world. So in a way, we are really not trying to eradicate fear at all because it's such an important function to survive for this organism and all other organisms that are alive. So it's a natural survival mechanism. And actually, it's nearly like this body is biologically engineered to be afraid. And I think this is a very important function we have. And the one time I really saw it in action was when um, many, many years ago, I was walking in California uh, with Stephen. And suddenly, like an ordinary little gravel path, kind of, you know, earthy path, just ordinary earth, there was a little sun shining. And then suddenly we were walking ordinary pace I made an Olympic jump. And Stephen said, why did you do this? And I thought, why did I do this? Suddenly, kind of this huge jump. And actually, I realized my body jumped because my next step before the jump was going to fall on a little rattlesnake sunning on the path in the sun. So before I saw it, before I could think, ah, I must avoid this, actually my body and mind made me jump. And only so the rattlesnake kind of nearly at the end. 
And so it showed me how useful it is for this organism to be detecting danger and react very fast to danger. But sometimes we are afraid and there is no danger. Like when my niece now is a, a little older, she's in her 20s and she's really capable. And what is interesting for me that I have very little fear about her, about her safety, which I found interesting because when she was younger, six years old, eight years old, 10 years old, whenever I thought of her, I, I had a little fear. You know, is she safe? Is there anything bad going to happen or thing of that nature? And so, I mean, she was in no danger. But it's interesting how fear comes in when we care and love somebody. It's interesting how we become more aware because we share with somebody of the impermanence. And then the impermanence generally oh, can lead to fear. But with fear which has very little kind of reality in a way, apart from the danger of impermanence, which can happen any time. So that I found also interesting, kind of this kind of fear, when nothing is happening. Or you have what I experienced again, and I found really interesting to notice with mindfulness. Again, bodily fear. Like with my niece, when she was younger, we used to go and do these kind of a thousand jumps in this kind of place where you jumped around from heights and you had kind of, you know, you did all kinds of things. And one of the things my little niece wanted to do, and she could barely be authorized to do it because of her height, was a 3,000 jump. So you would just throw yourself attached, of course, securely into a net then the next one was even higher, then the next one was even higher. And so, you know, she wants to go, so I have to go with her. And what to me was fascinating is because I knew I was safe and my body was saying, no way, I am not doing this. This is dangerous. But because I had to do it, I threw myself into the net. I got up to the platform and I could feel like ah, my whole body in shock from the fear. <gasps> we survived. <sighs> that was close. And what I found so interesting was that mentally, psychologically, I really was not afraid. But my whole body was reacting with fear. So, so that's kind of, to me, was so interesting to see, actually, that biological survival mechanism. But then, of course, because we managed to do it once, we had to do it again. My niece wanted to do it again. I thought, why not? Let's try this again. And then what was interesting for me was that the second time, when we got to the platform after the jump, there was no fear in the body. There was no reaction. So like the body integrated immediately. This is safe. So that not only psychologically I felt safe, but the body felt safe. And I thought that was interesting that there was nearly like such a quick adjustment to this kind of situation. So in a way, 
the fear is just, as I said, a survival mechanism. It's kind of, you know, red alert. Are you in danger? Are you safe? But is it real or not? To me, this is always a question. In a way, when I feel afraid, my question is, am I feeling afraid for good reason or not really? Am I in danger or not? Am I safe or not? So then when you look at emotions, then that's where the mindfulness can be so useful that then it allows us to seek that actually emotion manifests at three different levels. I have talked about already light, habitual, intense. And so when we experience intense fear, because there is a real danger, in a way, what is a little dangerous then is the fact that you have this fight or flight response. I remember many, many, many years ago, I was in a dangerous situation and somebody kind of uh, was aggressing me. And we were in the second floor of a building and my first thought was to jump out of the window to escape the aggression. And at the same time, I thought, uh-uh, this is not a good idea. You know, it's more dangerous to jump out of the window than to kind of, how can I creatively engage with this situation, which then was to help, to cry, help, help. And then somebody came to help me and then I was okay. So in a way, when there is intense fear, we have to be careful. We really need to apply. That's why we, in a way, need the stability, a balance to recover little stability and balance to see how can I creatively engage with this right now? Is the flight going to be helpful? Is the flight going to be helpful? Can I find another help? So really, in a way, we're kind of learning the mechanism and then how can I creatively engage with that mechanism? Then you have habitual. Well, not, you're not afraid all the time, but time to time, you feel afraid, you feel anxious. And that was many years ago, I used to go and teach in South Africa. And then at the time, uh, people were quite frightened. Uh, unfortunately, white people very frightened of black people in South Africa. And so what I noticed that when I was with people who were frightened, the white people who were frightened, then it would be contagious. And then immediately I would also become frightened. And that's where I, I realized, but do I want to give this contagion to others? Do I want to give my fear to others? That's when I really, really realized fear is contagious, especially Ungrounded fear is contagious. And then I went to stay with my other friend, also white, and he was fearless. This was somebody really kind of really connected actually to the whole population, was working with all kinds of different people, all kinds of different race. And he was somebody who was totally actually grounded in the earth. And as soon as you were with him, I was unafraid. 
So in a way, his non-fear was also contagious. And so sometimes this is something I ask myself. Do I want to contaminate others with my fear? Or do I want to help others with my fearlessness, with my groundedness? So that, I think, is an important point in terms of looking at fear and how the parami, I feel, would help us to be, in a way, less contagious in terms of fear, which is, I would say, unfounded. And a lot of the time, dictated by bias, by discrimination, by cultural association, by all kinds of things like that. So I think sometimes it's really interesting to see where is my fear coming from? Is really something dangerous? Or actually is it contagion from society, from culture of bias, of the whole society, of the whole culture, or my own bias? And I think that's an important thing to look at. But there is also another young person who came on one of our retreats in South Africa. And what she said is how just being aware of the breath, just mindfulness helped us so much. Because she was one of these white persons who was very afraid. She was so afraid she would not leave her house. So she was actually stuck in her house. Until she really did enough mindfulness of the breath that suddenly she realized, I can do this. Because she realized, like the Buddha suggested, most of the time, the world is a benign place. So that just by being aware of the breath, by doing loving kindness meditation, then she could go out and in the world, be careful, of course, of danger, but not assume immediate danger as soon as she came out. And that's where she was able to relate to people in a much better way. And I think in a way, that's why I want to bring in the questioning uh, this morning, what I learned in Korea. Because I think the questioning functions in the same way as mindfulness practice. Because when I talked about yeah, uh, though the day, what is one of the function of anchoring, of focusing, of coming back to the anchor, the breath, the sound, the body, the phrases of loving kindness? What one is a, one of the object of that? It's actually to come back to what's going on now. Because often we go into this narrow lane when we amplify, so we go into abstraction and we can amplify fear in an amazing way. We can then agitate the biological system. And I had this experience when I was in Korea that we, we did, I mentioned once that we, time to time, we did this non-sleep week. And one winter, nobody decided to do it. And then we, the women, we were four women in one room, five women in one room, we decided we're going to do this non-sleep week. And so, you know, off we go. 
And then I went to Master Kuzan because I was not afraid of not sleeping at night and sitting, but actually I was afraid of the dark. And I was afraid of going to the toilet outside at two o'clock in the morning or one o'clock in the morning. And then I asked Master Kuzan, what can I do, you know? And he said, come back to the question, come back to what is this? So I said, okay, what is this? The question is like going to be a talisman. It's going to protect me from the bad guys out there, like a kind of a protective clock. And so we start this non-sleep week and then one o'clock in the night, I go to the bathroom and on the way, I'm kind of like feeling this fear. And what am I telling myself? I'm actually telling myself, there is a guy out there with a knife and he's going to get me. And my heart is beating fast. But then I do what Master Kuzan said, what is this, what is this, what is this? And then after a while I realized, because what did the what is this does did was to come back to now, to come back to that moment, one o'clock in the morning, in the middle of nowhere, in the mountain in Korea. And I thought, who would know that I was there firstly? And secondly, who would want to come and get me? And then suddenly it was like the present hitting me, the reality hitting me. There is nobody out there. And so in a way, I think we've kind of like this, this kind of fear, which is an imagined fear. I think the mindfulness, the questioning can be so good. You know, we're asking, is this true? What you are imagining? Can you come back to really what is going on now? And then you have also light fear. But I find that interesting also to look at light fear. And the way I would describe it is in terms of, again, biology, is you driving your car or you're crossing the road, whatever it is, and you have a near accident. That kind of, you just avoid, but like, you know, that the car touch you or that the two cars touch each other, you just avoid an accident. And then we should be happy that we've avoided an accident. But generally, that's not what you experience. You experience, ah, I, get, ah, I nearly got caught. Ah, and then you're, ooh, and then you go, ah, and if this happened and that happened. And it's interesting because it did not happen. Nearly happened. And so what is interesting there is, do I, in a way, amplify the biological response? Or do I appreciate, okay, Cool. It nearly happened. It did not happen. Can I appreciate it did not happen? And maybe next time I will be a little more careful at this roundabout intersection, whatever. So in a way to see that often, this is why the questioning I think can be helpful. Is this true? Is this true now? Because often we can have fear in the future. I had a friend, he was so anxious 
that if at some point something happened, his life was finished, his life would be finished. He would be in a terrible state. And then that thing happened. And he looked strange. And I said, oh, what's the matter? He said, well, 20 years, for 20 years, I was afraid if this happened, I would be finished. And it just happened. And I'm fine. Because actually, in the future, you cannot do anything. Your creative potential cannot do anything because it's not happening. You can only do something in this moment. So when something happens, then your creative potential can come in, then you can creatively engage. And the last story I want to share is sometime when I do ironing, uh, I watch TV. And so, and then I have to kind of zap till I find something which is kind of okay enough to watch. And one time I fell on Dinotopia. And this film, which is with a dinosaur and people and ta-da-da, as a baseline that I ever saw, I was like, what? So there was these people training to be fearless, you know, so there were kind of this bunch of young people and you always have one with a little should be fearless, but he's not fearless. So you get to this kind of like, you know, uh, kind of challenging exercise. When, you know, like you have to jump over a chasm. So like you have a huge chasm, huge cliff, and you just have enough distance that you can jump. So you have, you know, the 15 young people postulant. Huh? So everybody jumps, you know, of course. And then the last guy, the one who is supposed to be the hero, but right now he's not the hero, he's there. And he's like... And then the instructor says, fear is in the future, jump now. So I will leave you with that, talking about fear. And now I just want to briefly introduce the questioning. So this is a practice that I did in Korea. And when I encountered Vipassana meditation, mindfulness meditation later on, I realized actually it's again following the same principle of anchoring, looking deeply or questioning. It's re-inputting together again, calmness and brightness. And at that level, it's one of the simplest practice you can have. You just sit there and silently, inwardly, you just ask, what is this? What is this? What is this? That's all. So at one level, it's extremely simple. At another level, it's difficult because generally when we ask a question, we want an answer. And then the next question and the next answer. But actually, this is not a practice of answering. This is actually a practice of questioning. And that's a very important point. Because in a way, fear, what is it about a lot of the time? About uncertainty. We want things to be known to be fixed, to be sure. But I mean, with uh, the principle of impermanence, 
I mean, things can be relatively continuous, but not all the time. And I think this practice is really helping us to be with uncertainty. So it's not an analysis, it's not psychology. You are not asking about anything definite at all. It's more like you're throwing the question into the moment. What is this? In order to be with it, in order to experience it without defining anything within it. What is this? And so actually the idea with this practice is to develop a sensation of questioning. And I think one of the particularities of this practice is to bring brightness. And so at that level, I find it's kind of quite a useful practice. And also it can help us with flexibility and creativity. Because in a way, what we do is just, what is this? And then in a way, there is this because we open to uncertainty, we open to unknowing, to not fixing or defining, then we're left with that sensation of perplexity, of unknowing, ah, which can in a way open us to the mystery of life, to the wonder of life. And so what we can notice as with any other practice is that whenever we come back to what is this, we come back to the whole moment. At the same time, this practice is not for everybody. I think like the breath, like listening, it really depends how it works with you. The first type of people really love this practice. Oh, I love questioning what is this. The other type of people sit there, what is this, what is that? Why am I asking this stupid question? Don't do it. <laughs> there are so many other things to do. This is not better than any other practice. It's not sacred. It's like the breath. The breath is not sacred. Sometimes we have people doing the breath for years and it doesn't suit you. And then they do listening and it really is a revelation. So like anything the questioning can be useful and some other people, it doesn't do anything for them. Then you have other people, if they bring the question, just with like the phrases of the Brahma Vihara, the qualities, then it sparks lots of thought. So again, if you ask a question and it sparks lots of thought, come back to something more simple. The breath, the body, the sound. And then just drop the question time to time. Personally, I think the questioning and the mindfulness is complementary. So that you could just do the breath and then once or twice, just drop in. What is this? Or the listening. What is this? Just opening to the whole moment in that way. And then the fourth type of people with this practice, it can make them a little anxious because it's really about uncertainty. And again, I would say, don't do it too much, but just do it as a complement of doing the mindfulness practice. So you do more the breath, the sound, the body, and then just gently time to time dropping. What is this? So that's what I like to suggest we try this morning uh, during the guided meditation. 
So we can just stand for a few seconds and then we'll sit or lie down or stand. So if we can find a comfortable posture, the back is straight, the shoulders are relaxed and open, the back is relatively upright, the head resting lightly on the shoulders. And we feel grounded, stable in the posture. While also open and vast. So grounded as a mountain. Open as an ocean. One way we can practice this question, what is it, can be together with the breath. So we breathe in and on the out breath, we can ask, what is it? Or we can throw the question into the moment. What is there? Without waiting, looking for an answer. Just opening to the whole moment without defining, grasping, identifying with anything specific within it. Is this? Yes. 
if we become distracted, gently seeing the distraction and coming back to the question, what is it? Again and again, developing a sensation of open questioning. What is it?
Coming back to the question, what is this? Coming back to the whole moment. Asking what is this? Being with unknowing, uncertainty, without fear. 
when asking the question, what is this? Cultivating equally brightness and calmness. Dropping what is this into this moment, into this experience, opening to this inner flow of condition, meeting outer flow of condition, which is a wonder, a mystery. What is it?
thank you for your practice and just standing stretching for just a few a minute a sec few seconds and then we'll have a discussion then now we have uh, the discussion and uh, we've already have uh, i think a question or a comment uh, is a point of the practice to learn to live with uncertainty, including fear? And do you and other practitioners drop the question into everyday life, such as activity and interaction with other people? So that was Patricia actually to myself and everyone. And uh, so we'll, let's look at Patricia first and then the rest. So I would say yes. Personally, I would say, in part, uh, the practice in general is to learn to live with uncertainty because of the impermanence principle. Things change, things are impermanent, and I mean, the ultimate change is death. And at the same time, we are not dead yet. You see, this is kind of like the mystery of life. As my teacher said, life rests upon a single breath. But at the same time, we are not dead yet. So the thing is to be aware of death, to be aware of uncertainty, and at the same time, to cherish this life, to cherish this breath. So I would say any practice, especially of vipassana practice, especially of understanding impermanence, help us to live with uncertainty, including fear, of course. But of course, this questioning practice is especially kind of, I think, connected to it. And yes, in daily life, uh, this is like a practice you can do as you work, as you relate. I would say the only thing which is difficult to do practice, but that's any practice, I feel, is uh, when you watch TV and when you read a book, then I think, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> you're reading or you're watching TV and then it's harder to practice. But in other ordinary activity, then of course you can ask the question. And personally, I find it very helpful when walking or when there is something uh, difficult to do, I find it uh, very helpful myself. Then I think that fear can manifest first in the mind and then in the body. It's, it is completely made, constructed in the mind when any condition in the natural environment is frightening, frightening us. This kind of thing is hard to deal with. The fact that there is, uh, this kind of thing is hard to deal with. Do you have some suggestion on how to deal with this kind of fear? So personally, uh, yes and no. Uh, of course, at one level, the mind uh, is uh, what makes this work. But I would say the heart, the adrenaline system is also what makes this organism work. So personally, I would say, Fear, as I pointed out, is as much in the mind as in the body. And something, personally, sometimes I think the body precedes the mind. But sometimes, of course, uh, the mind can really frighten us, very much so. And then, if we are in, in condition which is frightening, so it's kind of a danger, it seems to me that, yes, it's kind of like... The, the body reacts very quickly to danger. Of course, the mind reacts quickly to danger. Uh, 
And I would say, actually, the equanimity or groundedness. To me, when there is fear, the thing we fear is that it's, in a way, a, a kind of like a trigger for fight or flight. So basically, it's a trigger to action. And so, yes, sometimes we can fight or flight, and it's a good idea. And sometimes not, because sometimes in the fear, what is interesting is that it's kind of we get scrambled because we get agitated. The mind gets scrambled, and then we cannot see clearly so much. And so that's why I think equanimity can be such a good practice because actually it calms the system in the same way as if being aware of the breath works for you, being aware of the breath calms the system. I think in order to deal with fear, which agitate the system, I think something calming would be useful. It doesn't mean we have to be calm all the time, but I think to be able to access calm, access groundedness, access stability, I think what would help us actually to creatively engage in a dangerous situation. Because in a dangerous situation, what you want is your wits. You want really kind of to be able to creatively engage, to creatively respond. So in a way, you want less agitation and more calm, more steadiness, more groundiness, which what I really felt with my friend in South Africa who was just like, you know, I mean, the guy is not huge, but you have this kind of really feeling of steadiness from him. And then at that level, he can give you that feeling of steadiness. So I think that's also is what interesting. I would suggest steadiness, equanimity, the breath. I mean, they teach uh, the breath uh, to firemen, to different people who are working in emergency situation as a way to calm the system in order to be able to respond in an appropriate manner. After that, uh, thank you. I love the question. It really helped to keep me in the present moment. And the question felt like it was opening up a hundred doors in the mind. The fact that there is not one right answer feels very liberation. Actually, to me, this one of the reasons I teach this practice is that I feel it really helps us to become more multi-choice because we have a tendency to be a little fixed. It's like this, it's like that. There must be one true answer, one true way or whatever it is. But personally, I feel this practice really helps us with flexibility and actually connect us again to equanimity, as the Buddha said in the quote, as helping us to be malleable, to be flexible. But for me, this is one of the things about awakening. We often feel awakening as this big bang becoming like a Christmas tree. But personally, I think of uh, awakening, degrasping, as a way to be less fixated and as a way to become much more flexible, multi-choice, and creative. So yeah. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your practice. Uh, tomorrow I start work in pottery near Bejarak. 
and I know no one in the area. And I wondered if there is meditation meeting in the area. I mean, Bergerac, you're actually very near Tiknatan. So I think look up Plum Village. If you have a car, you're really not far from them. Otherwise, meeting in Bergerac, I don't know, but check up Plum Village. And then they're really nearby because they, uh, they're just below. You go to Bergerac and then you go down by car. They're about 20 minutes. So that's what I would suggest. Uh, then I found nearly every time I asked a question, I had an answer. My attention seems to go most of the time to where my sensation was strongest. I found it difficult to be aware of uncertainty. Do you have any advice how I can stop answering the question? So that's something that happened at the beginning, that some people, they ask the question, immediately there is an answer, immediately. And then I think it's better to use it, like you suggested, actually in a mindfulness way. Then actually to use the question to something specific, like a thought. What is this? And then you look at the thought differently. Sensation, you go into that, what is this? And then you look at it differently. A sensation in the heart. Oh, what is this? So I think we can use it in two ways. One, the traditional way, being more with the sensation of questioning, but that doesn't necessarily work for everybody. So then I think it can be very useful to actually do it with mindfulness. So you go to something specific and you ask, what is this? And then often the relationship shift and it kind of add a depth, I think, to the mindfulness. Uh, that technique was so helpful as a normally analytical, analytical person, it was a relief not to need an answer. I immediately had a flow of pleasant sensation, which I get very rarely because my body is so tired and tense. I felt open, aware of the space outside and around me and the sense of mystery and wonder was wonderful. The question also did bring answer in terms of what I was experiencing in each moment. So again, it shows how people are so different. Some people do this practice and it just has that effect. Some people are just like, ah, it's kind of like in a way by the questioning, it's kind of like you're able to release and be with the whole moment. And then you experience it in a very different way. Does not work all the time, but it does work time to time for some people in that way. And of course, that's wonderful uh, for the person. But yeah, again, some of the people, it just create more thought or more answer. So I think it's very important to see different techniques uh, will work differently with uh, different people. Yeah, and also, as I said, the question, I think, if we kind of use this questioning, then it makes, makes us question in a different way, which I think is very important. Because generally, we think of questioning as resolving. I question this in order to resolve my problem. When, in a way, with the question, I question this in order to explore what's going on. And so in that way, when we look at the body, it can be very interesting. What is this? 
And so we can experience the body in a different way. And then in that way, you can have some sort of answer because you are exploring it. What I found wonderful with my teacher, Master Kuzan, would never practice body scanning in his life is that early on in his career as a monk and practicing questioning, he had to meet a friend. And so he walked very fast at the time for three days to get there. He arrived there and because he overtaxed himself, his body was extremely painful. And he kind of felt at death's door. And then he questioned, what is this? Where is this pain? Like I have the feeling my body is in pain. I am at death's door, but what is this feeling? And then he goes through this whole body and he cannot find it anywhere. And it just goes. And I thought it was wonderful, kind of like in a way, bringing, having a feeling. I mean, of course you are exhausted. Of course it's painful on the whole body and mind. But then what do you do with that? And then if you, instead of going in the commenting and the association and whatever, the amplifying and just, what is going on here? Where is it actually? Actually, he realized he could not pinpoint it. And then he felt so much better. And I have done this myself. Suddenly you, you have the feeling you have pain everywhere. And then you look. And if you look, body scanning through the body, what is this? Then actually you realize, oh, I have pain in the hip. I have to do this, that, or another. Exactly. So in a way, we get some kind of answer. But I would say it's experiential answer. It's not abstract answer. Gina mentioned the steadiness of Martin Luther King, and I think of Greta Thunberg for facing the fearsome with fearlessness. Yes, I think when people do what we feel are fearless things, I don't think it's because they are in a way fearless, but they're not afraid of the fear. You see, what is interesting with fear does it paralyze or does it make you act? So I think this is kind of like an interesting kind of a fear. Of course, when we do something, uh, it can be dangerous, like with Michael Luther King or like even with Greta, getting all this backlash and she's just a little girl. And in a way, they are fearless because I would say of truthfulness. They are fearless because they have fear, they know there is danger, but in a way they go beyond the fear. In a way they jump now because something must be acted, because something must be done. So in a way it's a little bit because of loving kindness, for, because of the injustice, truthfulness because of the injustice, and because of the injustice, you are, of course, you are in danger, you will be afraid, this is natural, but you will not, this will not stop you from acting. I think this is what is very important in a way, living fearlessly is being afraid, but that not stopping you from acting against injustice or against ecological collapse or whatever it is. Uh, Thank you. 
Martin, I have habitual fears of opening up and speaking out, even posting this. I recognize that they are deeply ingrained story from childhood, but I sometimes wonder if in the recognition investigation of them, I'm grasping onto that past identity all the more. I love the what is this practice, the uncertainty of the present is a release. It just starts to remember to practice in the daily moment to moment. Yes. You see, in a way, we are afraid. A lot of the time, why we are afraid in this way, as Lucy mentioned, like, for example, speaking in a group, in public, is in a way because of a survival mechanism. Because in the past, in our childhood, we were told to be quiet, or we were told we were stupid, or whatever it is or we had a bad experience talking in public, whatever it might be. Or also we might be a little shy and anxious because of different things. And so, in a way, we, we have this unpleasant feeling tone, and then we're afraid, and then that stops us, in a way, from doing it. Because, but then, the question is, what is the worst thing that can happen? You see, this is what happened to me long ago, uh, beginning of my career of teaching meditation. And then we are in California and uh, Jack Cornfield very kindly said, oh, you're going to teach a weekend. Not many people are signed up. Come to my evening talk. Uh, there'll be 200 people. You can talk about it and maybe you'll get more attendance. So he gives his talk to the 200 people. Then he turns to me and then they thought, you know, it'd be better if the lay as a woman talk and you know female power and then Stephen can talk afterward if necessary and i was totally frozen i couldn't say a thing because i thought 200 people i have never talked to 200 people and i couldn't speak so then Stephen quickly came in and did the job and then afterward i felt so bad i felt so bad because of the women. I thought, I let down women. This is really bad. And then I thought, but actually, what is the worst thing that could happen when you give a talk? That you look stupid, but you're not going to die of it. And after that, I was in a way not fearful anymore in that term. So that's what is interesting. We, we, we're afraid, but what is the worst thing that can happen? So I think in a way the what is 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 a little bit helping us to see what is going on. And then kind of, can I open to the uncertainty? This is one of my uh, mantra in a way, is something might be a little uncertain, a little frightening. And before it happens, I generally say, let's see what happens. You know, and I'll bring stability and openness to it and let's see what happens. Uh, then this meditation helped me to see that my mind often goes to the future and planning because I'm bored by the present. Any suggestion to counteract boredom in meditation? You see, the thing with meditation, I mean, this is one of my big uh, theory, which people, not everybody agree with my theory, is that actually part of meditation is actually for us 
to become friend with a neutral feeling tone, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. I really feel that's what it's a lot about. Because you see, we can't always be in the pleasant or in the unpleasant because of impermanence. And so in a way, often, nothing much is going to happen. So often, we're going to be into this neither, pleasant or unpleasant. So if we are in this neutral state, what is very interesting often is, how does it make me feel? You could nearly say, how does it make me think also? But sometimes, for some people actually, if nothing happens, that actually is because there is not enough energy in the body and mind. And then it's kind of a little kind of depressing, one could say, to the organism. And then it becomes unpleasant. And then I think it's better sometimes to do something more active, like walking meditation or movement meditation. So really looking a little bit, is it like if I am too calm, too seated, then it kind of just a little bit, the whole organism doesn't have enough energy. That's one thing to look at. The next thing to look at is a little bit, I mean, I would nearly say it's kind of cultural at one level. And it's a fact that neutral is nearly seen as bad. And I think this is because of the romantic, that we must feel intensely something to feel alive. And then the question is, can we feel alive not feeling much? But not feeling much doesn't mean we feel we don't feel. It's interesting. Sometimes people are like, oh, I don't feel anything. So I'm not a feeling person. I mean, what you're feeling is neutral because nothing is happening. Personally, when it's neutral, I think, oh, restful. At least nothing bad is happening. So in a way, I mean, this neutral, we can look at it in so many different ways. But also, I would look at, do I need to have a meditation which is a little less passive in a way? People are different in terms of biology. And so sometimes I feel, well, kind of you see it and it's a little like, hmm, a little gray, a little dull. They're a little vague, a little dull, a bit, a little vague. That's what, I mean, that's something which is talked in all the meditation books, especially in the sun tradition, where the brightness is so important. And so they often talk about that kind of dull, a little vague state. And personally, what I would suggest is to do something more activating, like body scanning, listening meditation, <clears throat> if there are sounds, thing of that nature or loving kindness so that the whole organism is a little more activated. So you're still in neutral, but it has a little more energy to it. And also, <clears throat> how can I be with the neutral? Personally, I think this is a fascinating thing to look at and how we interpret it as boredom. That I found so interesting, kind of all. Oh, this is boredom, it's boring, I am boring, or whatever it is. And can you look at it differently, this neutral feeling tone? That's a little bit, I would say, the, the challenge. And also because nowadays there is so much, um, I mean, a lot of the time our life and are much more lively in terms of uh, thing going on. And I think 
when lots of things are going on and then we stop. Suddenly there's kind of such a contrast sometimes. Or sometimes we have too much, uh, nothing going on. And then if you see this, even more nothing going on. So again, then I would look at the walking meditation. And uh, what is the most important quality to bring to our meditation and say for, and say for therefore life, do you think? Um, I would say many different qualities. I don't think there is one. But I think there are different qualities which can be very useful at different times. And I think that's why we suggested the 10 parameters. Because in a way, again, that's what Gina started with at the beginning, that one of the beauty of the Buddha's teaching is complexity in terms of him looking at multiple conditions. So he never just give one thing to do. He always say, look, there are so many different conditions at any given time. And in that condition, loving kindness can help. He doesn't tell you be kind all the time to the same degree. That's not what he's saying. He's saying kindness as an actuality and intention can be helpful. Compassion can be helpful at times. Equanimity can be helpful at times. Giving can be helpful. Determination, energy, etc. Equanimity. So I think in a way, what I personally love about the Buddha's teaching is that he seems to be really like into experimenting. Like you see him kind of exploring. That's the way he started to meditate. Because he started to meditate, then he had all these terrible thoughts. And then he thought, should I continue to have this terrible thought? Could I do something else? To me, I think this is one of the things about the Buddha. He kind of asked himself, should I continue to do this? This is not helpful. So in a way, he's, a, he's kind of, he's an explorer. He's a researcher into conditions. So that's why I think different qualities will be useful, important at different times. There is an epidemic of anxiety in our Western world, even before COVID-19, which has exacerbated this. Are the outer condition even more anxiety producing in modern time? Why so much anxiety, anxiety disorder? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think, you know, I, I think it depends. Uh, personally, I think very likely we are more caring. And because we're more caring, uh, we're more accepting of different conditions. In the past, mental health was not considered something to take care of. In the past, being ill was the will of God, so who cares? And then some people said, well, maybe we should care and do something about it. So personally, I don't think, I mean, if you read the book, there is, <clears throat> I forgot her name, but she wrote a book about 1400 something. She's a great ethical moralist and historian. I forgot the name. And she wrote a book about this 1400 something date. And the year was terrible. I mean, it was so bad, anxiety producing. I mean, people were really anxious in ancient time too. Personally, I think possibly we're more aware of it because we're more accepting of it. I don't think there is more anxiety than at any other time. But I think some people might be in condition which 
help them to be less anxious. Some people might be in condition, which of course make them very anxious. If you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, or if you can pay your rent, or if you can keep your job. So I think at times the society might have enough resources that it can spread them enough, or have the goodwill to spread it enough, that's another story, that in a way people feel more secure. And then all the time, because of the way society is, uh, people might feel more, less secure. I mean, long ago, there was no security whatsoever. I mean, kids eight-year-old, and still in other countries, people, kids eight-year-old kind of have to work and things like that. So personally, I would not say there is more anxiety. I would say there is more kindness. There is more awareness of mental health. And there is actually more loving kindness in order to help out with it. But the problem is we think if everything is fine, why are they anxious? Well, we have different levels of sensitivity. And so some people within the same condition won't be anxious, some will be anxious. I think there is also a question of biology, but that I think has been at any given time in uh, uh, humanity, in the time of humanity, I would say. Uh, oh, just one minute left. So somebody, the question could be, what is this loneliness? That's, that's a big question. Do we feel alone and able? Or do we feel lonely and separated? And again, this is so according to, according to condition. This is so according to condition. So yes, I would say self-care is really about kind of seeing what is, you see, before calling it loneliness, before calling it boredom, how does it feel? How does it feel before? How does it feel after? And that's why I think tonality is so interesting because it's looking at, oh, one moment I was fine. Next moment I feel a little unpleasant. And then generally I associate, I give a name to it, and then generally it will amplify. But what is this? And actually it might be more amorphous than we think it is, actually. But of course, if it's something which is really heavy, of course, we need to find help and people to help us with whatever intense condition we experience. I think, again, it depends on the level, intense, light, habitual. Ah, bearing in mind uh, what you said about flexibility and no one answered, do you ever question your obvious commitment to Buddhist belief? Ah, do I, have a, do I have a commitment to Buddhist belief? I would say not. I would say not. Uh, I am not a great one for believing in reincarnation. I am not a great one for somebody telling me to be reborn as a man because then I will be able to awaken and so on and so forth. But I have greatly benefited from the practice of the Buddha's teaching. And so I am not going to say that I have all made it on my own. No, no, I have greatly benefited from the Buddhist practice in Korea. So I cannot say I 
I am not a Buddhist, but I am kind of not a Buddhist, which is going to say to everybody, you must become a Buddhist. Uh, it's just because this is a tradition I trained in. Uh, but you would be surprised, I don't know, possibly, to know that I don't read Buddhist books. <laughs> because they put me to sleep, generally. But recently, the la latest Tricycle magazine was so interesting. But there was lots of experiential articles. What I'm very interested in is, you know, what people practice, how do they experience it, and kind of ethical dilemma, and things of that nature. That's what really interests me. So, uh, well, I'm committed to Buddhist practice because it, it has helped me enormously. And it seems to help some people some of the time. But I would not say it's the only way to do anything because there are so many ways. Uh, to benefit others. So personally, I think it's more about suffering. You know, what is it that can help us uh, to creatively engage with suffering and not cause suffering to others, which I think is a big one, a big one. So personally, I would say my commitment is to wisdom and compassion. And Buddhist practices and the Buddhist teaching really help me to do that. But that's not the all and, and be all of it all because I follow, I kind of learn from many other things, of course. Uh, ah, we have really to go here. Is it a way to bring back the attention back to the present moment through sensation, quieting, thought, letting go of us to uncertainty? Yes, 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 Sarah. How do you balance being fearless and challenge yourself with our need to also feel safe? That is a challenge. That is a challenge. That, you know, kind of, you know, again, what are the limits? Sometimes we need more to feel safe. Sometimes we need less to feel safe. I think, again, uh, wisdom, the middle way. So fearlessness does not mean ignoring danger. But kind of saying, how much safety do I need? What is it that makes me feel safe? And I'm sorry, I have to leave you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.